The following episode discusses sensitive topics, such as child abuse and hate crimes. Viewer discretion is advised. Alexis Patterson was a boundless ball of positive energy, but still a well-mannered young girl from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Her innocent social skills and matured sense of leadership, however, were cut short by an unsolved disappearance in the spring of 2002, leaving all who knew her in her family home on 49th Street and the entirety of her Washington Heights neighborhood, grasping for answers in a sea of mysteries that drowned us all in doubt. In a hope to provide more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of the Alexis Patterson kidnapping in southeastern Wisconsin of the United States, and the decades-long search to find the little girl that disappeared in the blink of an eye amidst a sea of other children. This is Cold Case Detective. On April 4th, 1995, in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Alexis Patterson was born to mother Ayana Patterson and father Kenya Campbell. From an early age, her parents decided to forego using her first name by the birth certificate and instead called her Lexi for short. The name stuck around and she eventually adopted a second nickname from other family friends, going by Pi. When Alexis was still a toddler, her home life changed. Her mother, Ayana, split from her ex-partner, Kenya Campbell. Lexi and Ayana spent a lot of time alone together after this incident, forging an even closer and inseparable bond as daughter and mother. Eventually, Ayana met Laron Bourgeois, a fellow Wisconsin native, and the two married around the turn of the millennium. As Alexis grew, she quickly developed a very lively and energetic personality. She was clearly talkative, ready to strike up a conversation with anyone who would lend an ear. She was also not bashful in public, accepting of strangers, but never to a dangerous degree. In other words, everyone would often say, Alexis was just a lovely kid to be around, and many people both her age and older enjoyed being in her presence. In fact, a teacher at the Head Start program Alexis attended in her youth, named Benedicta Graves, once said to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, everybody always wanted to sit next to her. She always had a beautiful smile for everyone. It comes as no surprise, Alexis was a beacon of brightness and hope in her tight-knit community in Washington Heights. In late 2001, Alexis welcomed a newborn sister to the world when Ayana gave birth to another baby girl this time with her new husband, Laron. It was incredibly disheartening when, not too long later, the blessings and positive consequences in Lexi's life quickly changed to negativity and disappointment. While Alexis was never close to her birth father, Kenya Campbell, his run-ins with the law unfortunately cast a shadow over her too, specifically the legal issues surrounding a misdemeanor battery. In January 2002, Kenya Campbell was arrested and charged with both the misdemeanor mentioned and a misdemeanor for bail jumping. A couple of months passed by and Kenya was arrested yet again, this time for driving with a revoked license on more than one occasion. 
Another few months later, on May 1st, 2001, Kenya was further charged with a civil suit filed by the city of Milwaukee, asking Kenya to pay back a $7,500 damages fee for a crashed vehicle separate from Kenya's personal car. It is unconfirmed by multiple sources if Kenya posted a $100 bail to leave jail after the arrest for the negligent operation charge, or was held in prison until his release on May 6, 2002, as is according to law enforcement. This timing is absolutely critical information, however, because in the most tragic twist of them all, Alexis Patterson was kidnapped from her elementary school's property on the morning of Tuesday, May 3rd, 2002. In mid-April 2002, about six weeks before Alexis went missing, let us now turn to the timeline of events leading up to Lexi's disappearance. In mid-April 2002, about six weeks before Alexis went missing, her elementary school at the time, called High Mount Boulevard School, receives a series of letters written by someone warning the school of an unknown man who had tried to abduct a little boy in the near vicinity of the campus. Investigators attempt to track down this supposed man by keeping an eye on the High Mount Boulevard foot traffic. However, little is discovered by way of these letters. Just a week later, as April of 2002 came to a close, one of the High Mount Boulevard teachers witnesses an unidentified woman speaking to Alexis behind the school building. The teacher does not interrupt, however, she does mention it to her boss, as well as Alexis's mother, Ayana. Either that same night or on the following day, Ayana sits Alexis down to talk about the dangers of speaking with strangers. Alexis seems receptive to the lecture in real time, but quickly disobeys her mother's orders. Two days after the teacher initially sees Alexis with the unidentified woman, she finds Alexis once again chatting with the same person behind the school. Again, the teacher speaks privately with Ayana, who grows increasingly worried about her daughter's bizarre behavior. Fast forward seven days later, on Monday, May 2nd, 2002. Alexis runs an errand with her mother and the pair go to the store. Ayana lets Alexis pick out a treat to share with her classroom the following day, and Lexi specifically chooses cupcakes for her friends. The next day arrives on Tuesday, May 3rd, 2002, and Alexis wakes up like usual. She prepares for classes and goes into the kitchen for breakfast. Not too long afterwards, Ayana Patterson enters the room. She asks her daughter about her homework and discovers Alexis had never completed the previous night's assignments, even though Ayana had asked her to do so. As punishment, Alexis is told she is no longer allowed to bring in the cupcakes for her classmates. Alexis shows frustration with her mother, but still goes to school, albeit begrudgingly. Around 8 a.m. that morning, Alexis leaves her home near the corner of West Garfield Avenue and North 49th Street with her then-stepfather, Laurent Bourgeois. The High Mount Boulevard School, located at 4291 West Garfield Avenue, is only one block from Lexi's home, and she and Laurent arrive on campus in just a few minutes. Laurent then walks Alexis to the main crosswalk in front of the school and watches her cross it and march towards the school's playground, where she would sometimes hang out before classes begin. Laurent takes one last look at his stepdaughter before turning around and walking back to his house. This would be the last confirmed sighting of Alexis Patterson. A couple of minutes later, a few different students at Highmount recall seeing Alexis sitting on the playground by herself apparently upset and crying, 
However, this information is not shared until future interviews by police. As the day of May 3rd trudges forward, Alexis does not make an appearance at any of her classes, at recess or at lunch. However, she is simply marked with an unexcused absence and teachers carry on with their lectures. At around 2.55 p.m., Alexis fails to return home from school and her mother, Ayana, is immediately suspicious. It is only 242 steps to make it from her front door to the front steps of High Mount Boulevard, and Alexis had no appointments after school. Ayana is initially stricken by the news, without any idea of why her daughter wouldn't have shown up to class. Not long afterwards, at precisely 3pm, Ayana knows something is wrong and runs down the streets to the school building. A few minutes later, Ayana is able to track down school administrators, who tell her that according to Lexi's teacher, the seven-year-old never attended a single class that entire day. Ayana questions why none of the teachers or other staff members informed her of her daughter's absence, mainly because Alexis had achieved perfect attendance with straight A marks across the board, and her missing presence would not have gone unnoticed. When traces of Alexis can't be found on school grounds, Ayana then ventures to her grandmother's house, also in close vicinity to High Mount Boulevard. She too hasn't heard from Alexis that day, and leaves Ayana with no other option but to contact law enforcement. Thus, a few minutes past 3 p.m., and Ayana calls the local authorities to report Alexis Patterson missing. Within the hour, the Milwaukee Police Department arrive at the Patterson residence and conduct a formal search around the area, including the school grounds. At first, both investigators and Lexi's own parents believed the situation to be that of a runaway child. Ayana and Laron both feel there was a real possibility of this being the case, as Alexis had left the house frustrated regarding her incomplete homework and the cupcake ordeal. The initial search was designated as grid for grid, with the first focus being on all northwest neighborhoods in the greater Milwaukee area. The search then focused on West Vine Street, North 60th Street, North 16th Street, and vacant homes in the immediate vicinity of High Mount Boulevard. Without finding anything of value, the following day, on Wednesday, May 4th, 2002, authorities set up a mobile command post right outside of the Patterson home on 49th Street. A couple of days later, Arthur Jones, the Milwaukee PD chief, reveals to reporters that they still believe Alexis is a runaway due to the arguments she had on the morning of her disappearance. Over the following weeks, police searches expand to dive teams when the nearby lagoon is explored to all of its depths. Meanwhile, on land, law enforcement uses various boatcraft, motorcycles, helicopters, and even horseback riders to comb through the streets and woodlands of the surrounding Wisconsin areas. At the same time, hundreds of citizen volunteers from Milwaukee and the communities beyond come together to aid search and rescue efforts, specifically at hidden alleyways and public parks. There comes a twist when on May 14th, 2002, the Milwaukee Police Department gives another interview in which Lexi's case is changed from that of a runaway to an endangered child held under suspicious circumstances. Within the first month of the investigation, detectives sit down with the fellow classmates of Alexis who were aware of her normal routines and activities whilst at school. They also interview the kids in the hopes that one of them might remember something or even someone 
in particular on the morning of the vanishing. Multiple students tell police they noticed a red truck parked in the near vicinity of their school the week leading up to Tuesday, May 3rd. Then, right after Alexis went missing, the truck disappeared and hasn't been seen since. Unfortunately, law enforcement isn't able to locate a truck of that color in the surrounding neighborhoods and towns, and the vehicle has never been identified. Both Ayana and Laron are interrogated by the police, However, each parent maintains their innocence. Kenya Campbell, Lexi's birth father, had previously been in jail until May 6th, according to the MPD, and was thus never fully interrogated as a suspect or person of interest. Nothing of much credibility appears for a few months until August of 2002, when an anonymous tipster calls into a local television studio and informs them that the missing body of a young girl was thrown in the nearby Milwaukee River in the northeastern area around Estabrook Park. Within days, the MPD sends a team of divers to search through the upper Milwaukee River, but find nothing resembling human remains. Detectives then turn to sex offender registries and people out on recent probation and parole rulings, but again, find not a shred of evidence. In the spring of 2003, after no new leads have been unearthed in the search for Alexis, Laurent Bourgeois is given an official polygraph test by the MPD in regards to the disappearance. Reports then come out that Laurent actually failed his polygraph, but the questions aren't released, and polygraph tests are famously unreliable. Ayana also comes forward and announces she is in the middle of finalizing a divorce from Laurent, who has recently been described as abusive and threatening. Over the next few years and beyond, both Lexi's blood father and stepfather go in and out of prison for various crimes. One in particular in 2013 sees Kenya arrested for beating his new eight-month-old daughter. In all the years leading to the present day, authorities have interviewed nearly 100 subjects and poured over 12,000 documents of both evidence files and notes. However, they are still no closer to finding Alexis or explaining the circumstances surrounding her suspicious disappearance. When looking at the overall picture of Alexis Patterson's case, it might seem like a cut and dry disappearance with kidnapping the most likely explanation. However, when you peel back the layers of the case file and the investigation itself, there are signs that not everything is as it seems with a major conflict of interest at play via the roles of the police and their connection to Lexi's stepfather, Laurent Bourgeois. The situation dates all the way back to October 28, 1994, when Laurent was involved with a wide-scale bank robbery gone wrong in the greater Milwaukee area. During the robbery, Laurent was assigned as the getaway driver, stationed right outside of the bank on W Capitol Drive. Meanwhile, his partner, Booker T. Ship, conducted the actual robbery. On Ship's way out of the bank and into the streets, law enforcement had already responded to the bank alarm triggered after Ship's interruptions. The responding officer, Patrolman Ronald Hedbany of the Glendale Police Department in the suburbs of Glendale, Wisconsin, made contact with Ship and engaged in a short foot chase. As Ship made his escape, he used his firearm and shot repeatedly at Officer Hedbany. Despite wearing a protective vest, Hedbany was struck multiple times in the neck by ship's bullets and died en route to the hospital. 
Ship was able to evade arrest on foot and made it to the rendezvous point with Laron, who drove them away to safety. However, the two men wouldn't avoid capture forever. A few months later, Ship was arrested for yet another armed robbery attempt, and Laron was brought in as well. Prosecutors ended up striking a deal with Laron, who was granted immunity if he testified against the shooter himself, Booker Ship. So, while the man responsible for killing the police officer was put behind bars, his accomplice was not. Sure, Laron worked with the authorities to help them arrest their number one target, but that doesn't mean the entirety of the Milwaukee Police Department and surrounding agencies didn't look at Laron with disdain and disgust. Fast forward to the early days of the investigation into finding Alexis Patterson. Both Ayana and Laron are interviewed separately by the MPD and were given polygraph tests in addition to the formal interrogation. We all know polygraph tests aren't admissible in a court of law, but are heavily utilized by law enforcement when conducting criminal investigations or other high-profile cases, such as missing and runaway children. The results of these two polygraph tests is where the real suspicions begin that something may be unsettled in the heart of the Milwaukee Police Department. At first, none of the polygraph test results are released, either to the general public or to Ayana and Laron themselves. It was by no means illegal to withhold results, and sometimes detectives' fear results can impede their investigations if persons of interest are given the information. This time, however, the results were handled very differently. After first withholding the data, Milwaukee police eventually leaked the test results to the local media stations, stating that Ayana had passed her polygraph, but her husband, Laron, actually failed. At the time, Laron immediately denied the media's newfound reporting. He properly stated that he was never informed of the results himself, but he was 100% certain he had nothing to do with his stepdaughter's disappearance. While Laron did his best to maintain his innocence, despite living in a country that prides itself on the moral obligation of innocent until proven guilty, the MPD link to the media did the damage it was probably intended to do to Laron. He was seen as a strong suspect in the eyes of the public, due in part to the rumored failed polygraph, as well as the spotlight now shining on his criminal history and arrest records. Even Ayana wasn't spared the leak's negative impact. In 2016, she lost faith in both the MPD and the FBI when both organizations hung the unknown test results over her head when she was convinced she found proper evidence to her daughter's whereabouts. Despite the leak initially stating Ayana had passed, those in charge of her records would not confirm nor deny the actual results of the 15-year-old polygraph. While the situation at large doesn't necessarily mean the police are at fault for Alexis going missing, it's hard to shake the feeling that the leak of Laron's polygraph test results and the way Ayana was patronized were digs at Laron's previous run-ins with the law, specifically the death of Officer Hedbany. We must make it clear that this type of behavior is reprehensible. Yes, Laron was an accessory to homicide, but that doesn't mean you intentionally harm a mother grieving over her lost child, because that is harm to the lost child in and of itself. And no child deserves that type of action, no matter what their stepfather did or did not do. 
Unfortunately, the Laurent Bourgeois situation of the case is largely now a moot point. Ayana and Laurent divorced in 2005, and Laurent went in and out of prison until dying of a drug overdose in 2021. It should be noted that he strongly maintained his innocence in the Alexis Patterson case right up until the day he died. And while he did have a lengthy criminal history, never did any of Laurent's crimes involve children, kidnapping, or endangering a minor, and thus had zero impact on his consideration as a suspect. Bank robberies and drug charges do not preclude the abduction and murder of a child, full stop. It also places a huge target on the backs of the Milwaukee Police Department. How are they to be trusted when they've apparently been plotting the downfall of Ayana and Laron in the public eye? Those in charge of the Alexis Patterson investigation have since come forward and said they should have handled the initial polygraph test with more humility, but it doesn't change the fact that their immature antics could have led to those actually responsible evading detection and getting away with the crime. It is vital to hold law enforcement accountable when they hold conflicts of interest in major cases like this, and that single bullet point could have the biggest overall impact on the investigation. In the end, it makes us ask the big question. What else were the Milwaukee Police Department up to? Hopefully, that truth will be revealed. Let us now turn to the most prominent theories surrounding Lexi's disappearance. Unlike Laurent's case, in which his past included no signs of harming his or someone else's child, the other father figure in Alexis Patterson's life couldn't say the same thing. Some folks point to Kenya Campbell, the birth father to Alexis, as a potential suspect due to an incident in 2013 in which Kenya was arrested for allegedly beating his eight-month-old daughter, as previously mentioned. Specifically, Kenya was charged with three counts of felony child abuse and one count of child neglect. The entire incident started on November 22, 2013, when Kenya woke up his mother around five and told her that the baby fell off the couch and injured itself. The baby only had a split lip at first glance, but when Kenya left for work and put his mother in charge of childcare, new discoveries were made. Kenya's mother noticed other issues regarding the baby's physical health, and took her to a children's hospital in Wisconsin. After a quick CT scan and other tests were held, it was found that the baby girl had actually been dealt with trauma to the head, a broken jaw, broken ribs, a lacerated liver as a result, blood in her adrenal glands, and plenty of bruising all around her body. When the doctors in charge of the exams told Kenya's mother the injuries were telltale signs of child abuse, the authorities were contacted and interviewed the mother straight away. She told police that she heard the baby crying after falling off the couch, but changed the story to say it was after Kenya had already left for work. Kenya was then interviewed, and he told law enforcement that his baby girl had no bodily injuries when he picked her up at 3 p.m. the day before, but because he was the sole caretaker for her up until the following morning, he was still responsible for the child's safety. Eventually, Kenya was arrested. However, he pled not guilty to all four counts on the official charge. When the situation was first made public, many people looked at Kenya with newfound suspicion, wondering if his abusive tendencies date back to his firstborn child and potentially to her disappearance. 
These feelings derive from the uncertainty over Kenyon's time spent in county jail at the beginning of May 2002, stemming from the negligent operation of a motor vehicle charge. No one could determine whether Kenya had been released on May 1st or May 6th, a crucial detail considering Alexis went missing on May 2nd. Luckily, the MPD was able to clear the confusion when they confirmed via their records that Kenya Campbell wasn't released from jail until May 6th, making it impossible for him to have been responsible for Lexi's disappearance. Police also said Kenya was communicative and cooperative even after his criminal proceedings. So while his behavior later on in regards to his other baby daughter is reprehensible, his alibi clears him from any involvement with the case at hand. Once Laurent Bourgeois and Kenya Campbell were ruled out, cops didn't have many other places to go to look for suspects. Sometime within the first week of June 2002, police arrested a man by the name of Brian T. Werner after he was caught posting incredibly racist flyers attributed to the Alexis Patterson investigation. The flyers in question were littered with disturbing caricatures and hateful words, specifically asking why any white person would care about the disappearance of a young black girl. Not only that, but the posters were hung outside the America's Black Holocaust Museum, further terrorizing and instigating the community. However, when law enforcement finally tracked down Brian and his still unidentified co-conspirator, they learned there were zero signs that they had anything to do with Alexis Patterson and were simply capitalizing on the tragedy to spread their hateful ideology. Police weren't readily willing to accept Brian's innocence, seeing all of his racist and inflammatory tattoos covering most of his body, and they brought the case to court. Despite commenting on how disturbing and distasteful Brian and his friend's actions were, the judge hearing the case could not convict the boys of any specific crime, saying that no matter how gross their actions were, they are protected by the First Amendment free speech clause as a part of the US Constitution. So while Brian Werner and his unknown partner in hate were free to go back to society and share their unforgivable worldviews, the MPD were no closer to finding out what happened to Alexis Patterson. However, another strange incident came only a couple of months after the Brian Werner ordeal, this time in the form of an anonymous phone call to a local Milwaukee news station. The caller, thought to be an older male subject, told the TV station that he had it on good information the remains of Alexis were disposed of in the vicinity of Estabrook Park, at the bottom of the Milwaukee River. Before any information could be gleaned from the caller, or law enforcement could be contacted to establish a trace, the anonymous tipster hung up and was never heard from again. Authorities were left with no choice but to canvas Estabrook Park and trawl along the Milwaukee River bed. After a couple of days of dive teams devoting hours upon hours into the search, the MPD found nothing, making the caller an obsolete data point. Yet something about this call doesn't sit well with us. While odds are that it was nothing more than a prank done in bad taste, there's a part of any sensible person who wonders if the caller could have been a perpetrator playing games with law enforcement, teasing them with what could be, only to lead them astray. Could it have been a ploy by the perpetrator to buy time and escape the greater Milwaukee area? Could the man on the other end be the man who snatched Alexis Patterson? 
you could dig even deeper and ask the question, could the man who called the news station be somehow related to the prisoner who entered the investigation one to two years later? The situation came to be in either 2004 or 2005, as reports are unable to clarify exactly which year it took place, when a prisoner at a nearby Wisconsin institution came forward with information that the remains of Alexis Patterson were taken down to the southern region of the United States and buried around a major metropolitan area. Detectives immediately responded to the tip and tracked the lead all the way down to an abandoned home in the Baton Rouge area of Louisiana. Unfortunately, nothing of note was discovered at the empty structure or under the ground surrounding the home. The prisoner's info was all but a dead end. It's fair to wonder if the prisoner is the same person who called up the local news a couple of years before with a similarly misleading tip. It should be stated that false calls like this are seen in cold case investigations across the world, specifically when a missing person is involved. However, this case didn't receive the media coverage or public awareness that most missing person cases do, as it happened around the same time as the disappearance of Elizabeth Smart in Salt Lake City, Utah, in June of 2002. Thus, it's not out of the realm of possibility for the same prankster to become obsessed with this little-known case and mess with the investigators on multiple fronts. The other major player in the case, who has yet to be fully analyzed by the public, is the unidentified woman who was seen talking to Alexis behind the school in the weeks leading up to her disappearance. Then there is also the man who was reportedly attempting to kidnap a child from the High Mount Boulevard campus earlier that same month. We really don't have much new information regarding these persons of interest, but we pray they were tracked down and ruled out of the case by the MPD. If you know anything about the person speaking to Alexis behind the High Mount Boulevard school building in the spring of 2002, or the person responsible for the alleged kidnapping six weeks before Alexis went missing, now would be the time to come forward. The last remaining person of interest in the case of Alexis Patterson is definitely the most fascinating, as some people, including Ayana Patterson herself, believe they have found her missing daughter in the small, sleepy suburb of Bryan, Ohio. The situation arose in the summer of 2016, when a reporter knocked on the front door of Ayana Patterson's home and showed her a picture of a woman named Lisa from Bryan, Ohio a small town in the northwest region of the state. Lisa bore a striking resemblance to the age-progressed photographs of Ayana's missing daughter, and both the reporter and Lisa's ex-husband, a man by the name of Joshua Miller, felt she could be Alexis Patterson under a new identity without ever knowing. Lisa did not have any concrete memories of her life before the age of 10, without a birth certificate or any sort of documentation to prove where she came from. Lisa and Josh met in 2009 and had a child together within their first couple of years. Lisa already had a kid from a previous relationship, but the conjoined family started off promising. Unfortunately, the marriage ran its course rather quickly, and in 2013, the couple divorced after only four years. That wouldn't be the end of their story, however. When Joshua saw the age-progressed photos of Alexis at age 17, he saw a striking resemblance to his ex-wife, and started his own amateur investigation. At the time, he and Lisa were engaged in a custody battle over their son, but that didn't stop Joshua from diving deeper. He remarked about the inconsistencies with Lisa's upbringing, as we previously mentioned, about how she had told him when they first met she was born on Valentine's Day in Central America, 
before being abandoned by her birth father and brought to the United States, and then California by her birth mother and stepfather 12 years before, sometime in the 2000s. Yet Joshua couldn't let go of the fact that Lisa had a birthmark similar to Alexis in the exact same spot on their bodies, as well as multiple other matching details. Eventually, the similarities were too great to comprehend without further analysis, and Joshua submitted his theory to his ex-wife herself. Lisa was surprised by the developments, but actually reacted with empathy for Ayana and the entire Patterson family, and agreed to a DNA swab by law enforcement. In the meantime, Lisa attempted to research more of her own ancestry. She got as far as nailing down her birth location in Central America, and ordered a new birth certificate from her country of origin. The date on this new document had her birth date in the year 1988, seven years before Alexis was born. If it is a legitimate birth certificate, it makes Lisa simply an uncanny doppelganger. It also makes sense when considering Lisa's children. Her firstborn was too old to have been birthed by Alexis, unless Alexis gave birth at an incredibly young age, very rarely seen in modern society. Regardless, Lisa, Josh, and Ayana waited patiently for the DNA testing. Wisconsin Senator Lena Taylor, a staunch supporter of Ayana Patterson, who also felt Lisa looked too much like Alexis to ignore, arranged for a sheriff deputy in Bryan, Ohio, to collect a swab of Lisa's DNA and then send it to the Milwaukee PD via FedEx. Once the sample arrived, the MPD then sent it to the state's crime lab in Wisconsin. Eventually, the results came back. When Lisa's sequencing was compared to Ayana Patterson's sequencing, they found the two DNA samples were not a match. Ayana could not believe the news. She said the bodily similarities between Lisa and Alexis, the aforementioned birthmarks, the same moles above their left eye near the nose, the same bumps on their pinky fingers, and the same scars under their right eyes were too much to let go of. Ayana felt the DNA samples must have been tampered with, either intentionally or accidentally, and fought to have new tests taken. She hired a private investigator and went back to the Milwaukee PD to ask if they could bring Lisa in and have a more official DNA swab taken without all of the intermediaries involved. In an unsettling twist, the MPD said no and went as far to tell Ayana that they would only test Lisa again if Ayana agreed to a second polygraph test, as well as asking her to tell them what really happened on the morning of May 2nd, insinuating Ayana wasn't telling the truth from the start. This interaction only further disturbed and upset Ayana, as she was unable to understand why a second polygraph was necessary if the first one 15 years before came back with a passing grade. Angry, Ayana took a chance with the FBI, but the FBI said the exact same thing. She would need to undergo more lie-detecting exam before federal help with the DNA swabs could be approved. Ayana again denied a second test, declaring she wouldn't undergo further examination unless the specific results of her first one were released to her. Both local and federal agencies denied this request. Ayana has since stopped pursuing the Lisa angle as a part of her own search for her still-missing daughter, but feels in her heart that the Brian, Ohio woman is most likely Alexis Patterson. Nevertheless, the survey continues. While the case of Alexis is by no means a cut-and-dry investigation with clear suspects or obvious answers, we feel it is nearly a certainty 
that Alexis did not leave of her own accord, was kidnapped against her will, and taken somewhere far from where she'd be easily found. While she may have been sad or frustrated that her mum didn't let her bring cupcakes to school, that is not severe enough to trigger a child with no history of running away or patterns of bad behavior to leave by their own free will. We also believe that neither Ayana nor her ex-husbands were involved in Lexi's disappearance. In fact, it appears that all three individuals were given an unfair share of public and legal criticism due to their criminal histories or upbringing. Ayana herself has been outspoken about how she feels her family wasn't treated the same as the family of Elizabeth Smarts when her case was taking off on a global scale at the same time. She believes her childhood spent in the poorer districts of Milwaukee with parents who were drug abusers and partners who were in trouble with the law directly led to the clashes she had with the Milwaukee Police Department and those in charge of the investigation. And we can't help but agree either. After looking through the case, there is more information regarding the Patterson family history and the lives of Kenya Campbell and Laurent Bourgeois than the actual search for Alexis. We have no data on persons of interest outside her father and stepfather. We don't know who the MPD has ruled out or who they are looking at. We don't have suspects. We don't have clues. We don't even have more details regarding the red truck that seemed to play a big role in the early investigation. The public should have been given police sketches of the woman seen talking to Alexis just before she went missing, and the man seen trying to kidnap a child around the same time. The teacher who saw the woman would be able to give a proper description, as well as the parents who wrote the letters detailing the aforementioned male kidnapper. For all we know, it could have been a husband and wife working together to abduct a child for themselves. The phenomenon is unfortunately not as rare as one might think, especially when it comes to white adults stealing children of color to circumvent fees and the process of legal adoption. Of course, you can say this is all routine police work, that this information couldn't be made public because it could interrupt the investigation or even throw it completely off course. But at the same time, it's not like the MPD wasn't releasing other information at this time, specifically the polygraph test results regarding Laurent Bourgeois, which one could argue messed up the investigation and the trust formed between parents and law enforcements more than anything else could. There's also a simple yet much more disheartening explanation that cases involving women and children of color see much less coverage and less information released by detectives than you see in cases involving white women and white children. In fact, the entire concept of missing white women syndrome regarding the media's strict fascination with only white women who disappear was coined and studied by the medical community a couple of years after Alexis Patterson went missing and her case was completely erased from the national media's radar. Instead, the media focused solely on the case of Elizabeth Smart, who was thankfully found just one month after she vanished. It's hard to look at Alexis Patterson's case and the treatment of Ayana Patterson and not see that she was given an unfair bias by the MPD and how the scrutiny and prejudice shown by authorities would probably have been much different if Ayana and Alexis came from different backgrounds with different colors of skin. It is a tragic reality for so many marginalized communities in the United States and beyond. And no matter how much you hate politics, this goes beyond that. 
It's an issue of humanity and a big reason why we give a voice to the less heard voices and talk about these much maligned issues. In the end, we have no idea who could have taken Alexis due to the complete lack of proper information released by detectives. We'd suggest finding both the woman who was last seen talking to Alexis in April of 2002, as well as the person who was seen attempting to abduct a child from the Highmount Boulevard campus that same month, or at the very least, get us their descriptions and build sketches of their profiles. We believe the unidentified woman has a real shot to at least know of the fate of Alexis Patterson, if not be the one directly involved in her disappearance. In addition to the one man attempting a similar kidnapping in the same place just six weeks before it happened to Alexis. Without a doubt, the little girl from Washington Heights was kidnapped and someone out there knows exactly what happened. It's time we stop focusing on the Patterson family and look at the Milwaukee community and beyond for suspects and clues. In the meantime, we must honor the life and legacy of Alexis Patterson the way she deserves. She wasn't just the victim of an unexplainable tragedy, but rather a small beacon of what pure innocence can create. She loved people, and people loved her. She helped folks feel comfortable, even in uncomfortable situations, and was quick to spread smiles and joy in a world often void of such positivity. Even if her comfort around strangers mixed her into trouble that left us in this position, it should not be held against her. Rather, we will think of Alexis as someone who still has a chance to return home and make that shining impact her mother and so many others were confident in. She was a youthful soul that loved vibrant colors, such as pink and purple, and escaping into the world of roller skating in her free time. She was a child with so much more to give. Alexis Patterson is still a symbol of happiness, love, and the beauty created by humans who live with an unbridled faith in the happiness and appreciation of each other. This is Cold Case Detective.